listen in on and see what the Lord is speaking to us through it. So are you in John 3? Would you follow along with me, starting at verse 22 on to 30? After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion rose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Would you bow your heads with me one another time here to seek the Lord's help? Lord, as we said earlier, our desire, our purpose for gathering together is and ought to be to exalt the name of Christ, to increase him and decrease ourselves. So Lord, as we look at this passage, would you open our eyes to the ways that we need to do that today? Would you even open our eyes to the impossibility of this task? Truly, what you call us to in your word, week by week and day by day as we spend time in it, we see that there are things that we cannot do on our own. So like we just sang, we come to you expecting that you will work through us, that we will be able to obey what your word calls us to, and yet not I, but through Christ in me. So Lord, we ask for your help. We especially ask for your spirit to illumine the text to us, open our eyes to it, shine the light on our hearts, draw us nearer to Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. We can't really go with any other title when you're going along with this passage besides that of verse 30, right? He must increase, I must decrease. The Christian life is meant to be centered on Jesus in all things, in all areas of life. And so like John the Baptist, we need to have a life of increasing exaltation of Christ and that that will, by necessity, require us to decrease the life of ourselves, that self-centered lifestyle that we were born into, that we are professionals at. We look at the beginning of this passage and we see the setup of this issue that's going on here. Um, we, we came from last week, Jesus was in the city in Jerusalem, he was preaching. You know, we had this comment in chapter 2 towards the end that when he was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But on Jesus' part, he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. 
It needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he knew those who were coming and listening to him, who were genuinely ready to lay their lives down and to pick his life up, to exalt him and not themselves. He knew when he could see the seeds of true and abiding faith in people who were hearing his message. But he also knew when people were there to see something interesting, were there to be entertained, were there for any other kind of selfish motivation. He had a conversation with Nicodemus about the new birth. And he led Nicodemus to a point of basically scratching his own head and saying, I, I don't get this. And, and Jesus says, look, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. Last week we looked at the end of that conversation, which is likely a commentary by John the Apostle writing this, these words from 16 through 21 um, in light of that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. But of course, we get that famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We're three chapters into the Gospel of John, and hopefully you sense that there's a lot that God is calling you to by his spirit as you understand his word here. But I think that the passage we come to today, especially in light of considering receiving new birth and receiving the love of God and having a transformed mind, all these things that are passive, now we get to John the Baptist and he's going to call us to something that is very, very active. John's statement in verse 30, that is the central part of our text, of course, isn't necessarily a, hey, increase in Jesus and decrease in yourself. Not grammatically, right? He's not telling us an imperative. He's making an indicative statement. He's saying, this is what needs to happen. Well, we get from the rest of John's conversation that this was not necessarily just something like, hey, by the way, you ought to make this happen. But John the Baptist was really probably one of the best people to look to to see what this actually looks like. And so we come to verse 22 and see the setup of this whole situation. After this, that is Jesus leaving Jerusalem, going out to the Judean countryside, and he remains there and he starts baptizing people. Jesus' ministry shifts from the city and from the important people of the city to the countryside and really just anybody who will come. And if you remember, John's message attached with baptism was very simple. It was a message calling people to repent and to prepare the way of the Lord. And so now that Jesus is here, his interaction with this uh, task of baptizing is not meant to be inconsistent or contrary to John's message, John the Baptist, but it's a continuation of it. It is a picture of the, the fulfilling of that, as we will see from John's words himself. Now, just as a side note here, John the Apostle, the writer, is saying that in verse 22, he remained there with them and was baptizing. But when we come to chapter 4, Lord willing, in the next couple weeks, we'll see that actually in verse 2, Jesus himself was not baptizing, but only his disciples. So just so you understand the context here a little bit, the, the discussion that happens in verses 25 and 26 between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification ultimately amounts to this question, where should I go to be baptized? John the Baptist, who I've heard about for weeks and weeks, and whom hundreds of people have come forth to be baptized, is still baptizing people, but the one who he said he's simply a forerunner of is over here baptizing people. Where should I go? 
This is our most natural guess at what this discussion is that's going on in verses 25 and 26. Now, it's happening between John's disciples, who, let's give them a little bit of grace. They're clearly a little bit confused on how things are going here. Even though John was proclaiming and has made it very clear, as he says here, I am not the Christ, but I was sent before him, John's disciples are still kind of confused. Maybe there's a difficulty in their own mind, in their own hearts. Maybe there's something that they fear to lose if they cease to follow John and start following Jesus. Well, this Jew that is mentioned by John is, is, I mean, by necessity, simply a non-disciple, simply somebody who was coming to ask a question about purification, much like Nicodemus in our previous passage as well. And this question of purification, of course, has to do with baptism and who should be doing the baptizing and where should I be baptized and all those questions that are coming along with it. And and it kind of prompts something that was clearly already festering and growing in the hearts of the disciples who asked John. Like uh, The question here is not simply a, hey, we were just wondering, but but there's definitely some emotional value behind it. Because this conversation with um, the non-disciple opens up a wound that has really been growing in them and saying, maybe wound is a strong word, but this idea, this concept of where do we go from here? Uh, We know we saw back in John chapter 1 that some of John's disciples have moved on and started following Jesus. Some have not. We're not told what the distinction is. Who Do you have to pass a test? And then John says, guess what? You graduated to Jesus's class now. It doesn't seem to be that simple. Of course, we know John was gathering disciples and he was baptizing people. Jesus is now doing that same thing. And he does have, eventually we find out that there's a crowd that follows him, many disciples, but we also know there's a certain 12 who are the closest to him. Perhaps part of the questioning of John's disciples is, I found a really good place here with John the Baptist. I feel like I can approach him. I can talk to him. I can ask him these questions. I feel like when people ask me about John the Baptist, I can say he really does eat locusts and honey. And he really does have a crazy beard. And he really does dress with camel's hair. And and yes, that is his message that you need to repent and prepare for the coming Messiah. Maybe they're very comfortable in what their ministry looks like with that. But if they were to transfer over and start following Jesus, that could throw everything aloof. Things could be totally different. Maybe they're not ready for it. Maybe they feel that As far as they've come with John the Baptist, now coming to Jesus, they might have to start all over. That's certainly what Jesus told Nicodemus, wasn't it? You must be what, he told him? Born again. I mean, that's the ultimate erase your huge whiteboard full of amazing theological facts that represents your mind. Erase all of that and start over. Become like a baby and learn the basic principles of what I came to do. Perhaps these disciples were having a little bit of a problem with this. So they direct their question to John. Look at this again in verse 26. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. It's an interesting question. We know that John the Baptist was still baptizing people. So when this disciple who came up to John and said, everyone's going to Jesus, implying nobody's coming to you, uh, John might have been in the middle of baptizing somebody and said, what do you mean nobody's coming to me? 
John the Apostle already says John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. So John's still doing what he was called to do. He doesn't get any, any kind of worryful sense that, uh, man, uh, maybe I'm going to run out of people to baptize if everybody goes to get baptized by Jesus. He's not worried about that. But clearly, his disciples are. And his disciples have elevated the situation. And they've said, all are going to him. What will happen if all really go to Jesus? What will happen in your life if everything that you are, everything about you, Everything about your family, your work, your neighborhood, your associations, your church, your Sunday service, your backyard, your car. What will happen if all those things really go to Jesus? Well, like John's disciples, we're worried that if everything that we have actually really goes to Jesus and actually finds its fulfillment in him and is meant for his exaltation and not mine, we will naturally fear that we have something to lose. When we look at John the Baptist, we see a man who went from years in isolation in the wilderness to the most fantastic ministry, and then finally, the guy who he's proclaiming shows up, and you imagine that for John, the temptation is, although it seems he's conquered this temptation very well because he was very ready with an answer, but you could see that the temptation would be, oh, God's done with you, John. You had a nice run, buddy. Time to hang up the old camel fur and retire, right? You're not needed anymore. Nobody wants to hear from you. All these things that we are afraid of, right? We said this morning in Sunday school, okay, I said it, I'm not, but... It's, it's true. Whether you are an extrovert or an introvert. Extroverts, well, of course, we know there's a temptation for people who are energized by crowds, energized by being with people. There's a temptation to think, yes, I want everyone to see how great I really am. But if you're not like that, if you're introverted, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're suddenly automatically humble, right? You could still find a temptation to say, yeah, I want everybody to know how great I am. I just don't want them to talk to me about it. I want... I want the world to revolve around me. I know that I shouldn't want that because I am a Christian. But to some degree, we still have this difficulty. Even if your desire is not to say, I want a big house and I want a nice car and I want this and I want that, maybe it's, it's this, this idea that the problems that come into your life, you just say, Lord, when are you going to ease up a little bit? That can also be a sign that our world doesn't revolve around Christ, but around ourselves. It's true of all of us that the things that we fear most to lose in life are the things that we trust will bring us the most satisfaction and the most joy. Those are the things that we've invested the most of our time in, the most of our talent, the most of our treasure, the things that we put our hope in. Well, John the Baptist shows us that in order to truly live Christ-centered lives, I will have to embrace a decrease of myself that I'm not ready for. My idea of joy and satisfaction is mostly involved in my own plans and my own dreams coming true, my plans coming together, all of my hopes being fulfilled. So living a Christ-exalting life will take a degree of humility that I just don't have. This happens in all sorts of settings. 
the most easy one, the easiest one rather, <laughs> is in ministry. It's very easy for us to consider that I will be important in ministry and my, my ministry will matter when I am in front of people. Or, or really, even, even this is true too. Again, you introverts that like to be behind the scenes. It could even be tempting to say, nobody even knows how important I really am. Right? You don't have to be an upfront loving person to be a self-centered person. We are all that by default. And the way we express that doesn't really matter so much. Ministry. What about in your jobs? Have you ever had a day where you went into your job and you were feeling good? And you sit down at your desk or you go to your workstation, wherever you are, and you're ready to do the thing that you're supposed to do, and you find out there's a new person coming in who's also going to be doing the same thing that you're going to do. And what do you feel? So excited, because I'm so glad to share the load. More like, is this person better at this job than I am? Why did they hire another person? Am I getting pushed out? Am I needed anymore? Maybe you've never been in that situation. Maybe you've been a new person. How about sibling rivalry? I'm sure if you have a brother or sister, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But consider in Genesis 39, verses 31 through 34, I'll read this to you. This is about Leah and Rachel, the wives of Jacob. And, you know, this is a funny story to go to, of course, because there's a cultural bridge we need to cross that, like, wait, hold on a second. God's design was for one man and one woman to be married forever, right? So why does Jacob have two wives in this scenario? Well, I'll tell you the most important thing about what we need to know about that context is that God shows that it was a terrible idea. And that's where this passage leads us. <laughs> if you needed convincing, apparently some of you don't. Listen to uh, what happens here. So when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, sorry, I forgot the rest of the context. Um, Jacob was tricked into marrying Leah, whom he was not interested in, um, before he actually got to marry Rachel. So, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Do you hear the, the self-gratifying result that she was looking for there? Even in the blessing of God? Even in the fact that God was going to build an entire nation out of the 12 children that these sisters were going to bring into the world? You still see this immediate, the Lord has looked upon my affliction. That's good. We want the Lord to do that. Now my husband will love me. You can hear in her heart a brokenness and a great need that she has. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She, came, she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband, whom before she said, now my husband will love me, now she says, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he called his name Levi. Do you see the conflict in this a little bit? That God is, is giving life and, and this, this wife who is so longing to be loved and so longing to be accepted is, is kind of turning these things around and saying, now I'll have this. Now I'll have this. Because why? Because I have borne him three sons. Well, this created a rivalry back and forth. And you can see in the rest of Genesis uh, 29 and 30, the, the, the fallout of all of this, this competition to have the most sons um, between Rachel and Leah just drove a wedge and, and just became this perfect scenario for sin and selfishness. 
But I want you also to consider some siblings who, rather than competing with each other, actually teamed up to magnify their sin together. We see that in Mark 10, verses 35 through 37. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I don't know a time where I haven't read that verse and just stopped for a second and went, Wow. I mean, that's bold, right? We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I would love to challenge you to even try to say those words while you're praying. I mean, I can't imagine talking to Jesus like that. Verse 36, he said to him, what do you want me to do for you? I imagine with a little bit of an eye roll or just strict overwhelming compassion. Verse 37, they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Not only do they say, listen, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Are you ready? It's kind of like when somebody comes to you and says, if I ask you to do something, will you do it? I mean, you have to say no to that, right? Like every time, because you don't know what they're going to ask. I mean, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, sure, I'm, that's what I'm here for. I'm, I'm the magic genie to satisfy all your dreams, goals, plans, and wishes. What Jesus responds to them with is not at all what they expected. And you can look at Mark 10 for more of that. Well, John's disciples were tempted to believe Jesus' involvement in the ministry was going to take something away from John's ministry, ergo take away something from their own ministry. And our question this morning and our problem that we need to deal with is to find out whether there's some kind of spotlight in your life that you're afraid of losing. Or maybe there's a spotlight in your life that you're afraid of never gaining. Have you asked yourself whether that thing that you want or that thing that you have, have you tied up your whole value in that thing? The American dream is fueled by our accomplishments, isn't it? If you want to live the American dream, however you interpret that, that this is the land where dreams come true, all you have to do is work hard for it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get to work. Well, John the Baptist gives us something opposite to that both in this world and as we are where we are today, stepping into the kingdom of God, we're going to be tempted continually to try to satisfy ourselves, to try to find some kind of prestige or some kind of situation where we can say, I want people to know how important I really think I am. I wonder, I kept thinking back on this, there are things that we do and things that we say that might not even register in our minds that, express that desire. I wonder what kind of things my kids are hearing. I wonder in the workplace if I am kind of just going with the flow of talking about those two big things, complaining and bragging, right? When you talk around the water cooler, the stereotypical conversation is either complaining about something that the boss did or trying to brag about something that you've done. I know Christians don't do that, but that's, that's how the world works, right? Let's look at John's exaltation of Christ. Let's look at John's answer to this whole scenario, this whole situation. Now, John the Apostle doesn't give us a time frame in between verses 26 and 27. But it seems to me that John the Baptist, the Baptist, the baptizer, you can call him that too. John the Baptist didn't need time to think about his response to this question. Well, the question isn't even really in the text. It's implied, right? Everyone's going after him. The implied question is, 
What are you going to do about it? John answers in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. I don't know if you remember from Luke chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And he says, Among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John stands, the, John the Baptist stands as the sort of bookend of the Old Testament, transferring over to the New Covenant, the fulfillment of all the things that were foreshadowed and promised in the Old. And so Jesus says, hey, look, there's, you're not going to find a greater guy than John the Baptist on the earth. But now that the kingdom of God has come, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he Well, John the Baptist shows us in verse 27 why Jesus says you need to listen to a guy like John the Baptist. Because his very first response to this has to do with something that we all need to know. If you remember last week, I I gave you a sort of pattern for application of something we need to know, something we need to be, and something we need to do. And that's how I want to formulate John's um, response as well today. John the Baptist shows us that we need to know that everything that we have is something that we've received. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The source of any good or any accomplishment, anything that you have known, been, or done, has all been given to you by God. James tells us that all good things come down to us from the Father of lights who shows no partiality. He loves to give good gifts to his children. And John the Baptist realizes that in this transition where Jesus is taking over a large chunk of his ministry, and it seems that his life, that for a moment seemed to be more about him than it ever has been, is now just being swallowed up in the life of Christ, John sees that as the perfect fulfillment of everything he's been given because he has indeed been given it by Christ. So we need to know that God gave us everything that we have and has made us everything that we are. As regards purification, baptism is fulfilled in what Christ has accomplished. So for for John to look at Jesus baptizing, he says, that makes perfect sense. That's what this whole baptism thing means. Well, how easy is it for us you know, when we talk about baptism or when, when maybe in the process of your baptism yourself, when we say, boy, I don't really like talking in front of people. <laughs> or you say, I can't wait to get up there and talk in front of people. I'm going to give my testimony and they're going to dunk me under the water. And I'm going to come back out and everybody's going to clap for me because that's what we do in the North American church, right? And John is like, no, it's not about us. It's not even about the guy who gets to baptize or the guy who gets baptized. It's about what that pictures. Baptism is fulfilled in what Christ will accomplish. So if Jesus is baptizing, great, keep going, Jesus. As regards John's ministry, he says all that has come before and has been done for him, has been done for him, and rather has been done by his spirit anyway. I didn't contribute anything to the work of God in my own ministry or in my own life or in my own message. And so if he's going to take something from me, he's not taking anything that I've contributed in the first place. He's simply moving forward with the rest of his plan. 
It's got to feel kind of good, right? In one sense, if you're in the mindset of John the Baptist, to be able to look at it and say, my job's done, right? Not that that means I'm going to sit back and not do anything, because what is he still doing while Jesus is baptizing? He's still baptizing too. And I imagine there were a handful of people who were going down to the Jordan and looked over at the line at Jesus, and like, well, I really want to get baptized, but I hate lines. There's like only, there's like 400 people over with Jesus, and there's like 10 over at John the Baptist. I think I'm going that way. It might have been really easy for some people to think that, and John the Baptist wouldn't have gone there and said, listen, before I baptize you, I just want to know, are you really just here because Jesus' line is too long? No, he would have gloried in it. He would have, he would have probably told him, like, hey, when you're done here, it would be worth your while to find out more about Jesus. You know, the one that you're being baptized into right now. That you are repenting of your sins and trusting in the one who is going to come. He's right there. We're not in the same scenario as John the Baptist, right? Jesus isn't running a church across the street from Cross Point. He's here now. And it would be remiss for us if we were preaching a sermon or teaching a Sunday school or singing or, or leading in some way to say, hey, listen, why don't you come talk to me after all of this? Because I've got a lot of other cool things to tell you. Right? What we should be doing is saying, like, hey, all of this that we do on Sunday morning and really all of what we are meant to be doing throughout our week is to point people away from us and over to Jesus because I have to decrease and he needs to increase. That's the point. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What we bring to our families, to our church family, to our job, if there's anything that we look at and say, this is my contribution to the community of faith, to the community of the Vion household, to the community of wherever you work, whatever it is, that we need to change our thinking about this. I know we already said it. I want to say it again. James says in 117 of his letter, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's not partial towards one or another. He gives all of us in Christ a specific role to play. Some of those roles last for what seems like just a moment. Some of them last for a lifetime. Some of them have great results and great effects. Some of them have almost seemingly no kind of effect or impact in the world around them. But they are nevertheless given by God to his people. And we are not meant to be the judge of how effective we are doing. And we can actually free ourselves from that if we can trust that it is all about what Christ is doing. Christ is the ultimate giver of all good things. We'll see next that he is the bridegroom who is worthy of those all that are going after him that the disciples were so worried about. But why is he so worthy of this? And why is it that we talk so much about what we've been given? Should it, is it something where I want you to leave and just say, all right, everything I have is given to me from God, so I just need to... I just, I'll just give it all up. I'll just give it away. And No, there's, there's this joy thing that we're going to get to in a second here, right? But think about what God has given you in Christ. Just for four quick things. First of all, he's given you life in his son. We saw that last week in John 3, 16. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Paul tells us he's given us his very spirit living inside of us as a guarantee of his continued work in us. Jesus has not left us to say, hey, I started this thing. We'll see if I come back and finish this project called you later on. 
He says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. How, how are we going to know that, Jesus? Are you going to come to church with us every Sunday morning? Can you imagine if Jesus was sitting in the front row, how quickly you would like stop listening to me and the line would be huge, right? People would either line up to go talk to him or they would all run away entirely. One of the reasons why Jesus says it's better for his spirit to come is because his spirit is living inside of us and ever accessible to us. Jesus was limited in his earthly ministry. It doesn't sound like a very Christ-exalting thing to say, but it's true, right? He still got tired. He still had to go to bed at night. He still had to eat. He still had to take a break. But now that he, through his spirit, is living inside of you, he doesn't need to take a break like you do. You don't need to stop and pray and say, let's wait for the ringtone to end. See if he picks up this time. No. There's never a time. So I, in prayer meetings, we always talk about how what we're doing is actually entering into an ongoing conversation that is already happening. We're not initiating something where God like wakes up and goes, oh, they're talking to me, wow. No, you are ever discussed before the throne of God. Discussed as in a discussion, right? Okay, you are ever talked about before the throne of God because Christ is there. That's not to say that Jesus is up there and just like, man, I just think Nick is great. Can I just tell you about, no. The, the presence of Christ as the risen savior of his church ever speaks to the Father of those whom he has saved. It is a constant reminder to him, not that God needs reminded, but God the Father will ever look at his Son and see us in him. Because that's what Paul wants us to know so much over and over, that we are in Christ. And that means something. So, he's given his life in his son. He's given us his spirit as a guarantee. Through his spirit, 2 Timothy 1.7, says that he's given us his power. He's given us love and self-control. In 2 Peter 1.3, one of my favorite verses, because we know Christ, we are given everything we need for life and godliness. He's not, he's not being selfish in his giving. He's not holding anything back from you. How often we tell ourselves that, especially looking at a verse like this, he must increase and I must decrease. Haven't I given God enough? I could have slept in this morning. I could have stayed home and finished my bathroom project. I could have, I could have, I could have, but I gave him this. There's never going to be a day where Christ is going to ask you for something that he doesn't deserve, Right? And yet his motivation to you is not, hey, now listen, we entered into a business arrangement here where I provide A, goods, and you respond with B, worship. That's not it at all. Our relationship is not based on a business agreement. It is forged in the blood of Christ at the cross, in his resurrection, in his giving us that spirit to live inside of us and to communicate to us constant grace upon grace upon grace, love, joy, affection, peace, power, self all the, boy, you could go into the fruit of the spirit, all those things, they are constantly being communicated to you, church. You don't have a shortage. You can look at your, your trial, your struggle, your, your problem that you're facing right now and think, boy, I wish God would give me. And, and you should stop yourself there. Because you might be tempted to think that God doesn't want to give you that thing that you think you need. Because, yeah, we know when we pray, we're like, okay, he always says yes or no or not right now. And I don't know where I heard this, but I keep saying it because it's so good. 
when we ask for that thing that He doesn't immediately grant to us, it is always covered in the fact that God is saying, you can't have that right now, but you can have more of me. You can exalt Christ more in this situation. You can see my great love for you even better than you could yesterday if you'll receive that. If you will let yourself decrease so that Christ might increase. So what we need to know, every good thing that we have is given to us by God. John the Baptist says in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ I've been sent before him. This is the first thing that he answers, right? In John chapter 1, the Pharisees come and they say, Who are you? And John goes, I'm not the Christ. And we talked about how this is kind of like a funny thing, right? You don't come to church and meet somebody and say, Hi, I'm Nick. What's your name? I'm not the architect of this building. I'm not a greeter. I'm not a deacon. I'm not an elder. No, but what John is communicating here is the first most important thing in the context of his ministry, is to say, I am not the originator of these things. You need to know that about me. And he says to his disciples, you bear me witness. This is not the first time you've heard me say this. I don't imagine that this is only the second time that John the Baptist said that very phrase to people coming and saying, who are you? What are you all about? I'm about Christ. So he calls us in verse 29 to understand something of the joy that we have available to us. That we should know all these good things come from him, and then that we should be joyful and satisfied in him alone. Since Christ is here, everyone should go to him. All should go to him. He is worthy of that. And the way they should go to him is like a bride prepared for her husband, waiting for her husband. So in verse 29, he says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, talking about himself, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You know, John bore witness to the Son of God day after day after day in his baptizing, his preaching, and his calling people to repent and believe in the one who was to come. And now he's here, and John says, my joy is complete. He doesn't say, man, I don't know what to do with the rest of my... I mean, my whole life literally has been built up to this moment of ministry. What does John the Baptist do in retirement from the calling that God had on his life? He's killed. Do you remember in the beginning of this passage, in the, the little setup here, verse 23, John also was baptizing, and people were coming and being baptized, verse 24, for John had not yet been put in prison. I don't imagine that prison shut his mouth but it certainly shortened his reach, didn't it? It took opposition from the world to slow down what he was going to do. And in fact, it, it didn't completely shut him up anyway. But John realizes, and he's telling us, that all that we fear to lose because of what Christ has to gain is not a loss at all. Because we all want joy. We all want to be satisfied. And so we look all over the place for those things. We don't find them. John the Baptist puts himself in the position of being the best man at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus, the true bridegroom, the church, his bride. And John, in regards to his own ministry, says, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. 
There's a lot of historical interesting things going on here about how the best man um, during this time period of the New Testament would have been the one who was kind of like the gopher for the wedding. He was in charge in a lot of ways. He was helping plan things. He was serving the groom in every way that he could. Uh, One source even says that he would be guarding the door of the bride so that no one would bother her, right? Um, That he would be listening for the groom to call him and say, best man, I need you for this. And what does the best man do? That's a pretty lousy best man, right? I mean, maybe you've been at those kind of weddings where you can tell like the best man is not interested in being there, not being the best man. That's not John the Baptist. John the Baptist had found complete joy and satisfaction in being the guy who steps aside when Christ steps in. And it's no different for us. Yeah, we're not John the Baptist. We're not going to have this crazy wilderness ministry, perhaps. But the wilderness that you are in right now has a ministry component. Not just a component, but it is meant for ministry. Whatever those challenges are, wherever you find yourself, all of your life setting, all of your situation is meant for you to do ministry and to find complete joy and satisfaction in Christ as you do it. John always knew his need for Christ. In Matthew 3.14, when Jesus comes to get baptized by him, what does he say? I need to be baptized by you. John has no inkling, as we see it, of a desire to usurp Jesus or to take over his position. He's content in the reality of his ministry. And as we embrace that kind of contentment in our lives, in every area of our lives, as as Christ's exaltation spills over into each, each compartment of our lives, we're only going to find greater satisfaction and joy. I know that it is easy for us to think, you know, man, I, I just don't think I can do all these things that he keeps announcing on Sunday morning. I know it's, it's very easy to look at that and just kind of say, like, well, there's all the things that I can't do. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for that. And, and maybe, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to get too, I don't, certainly don't want to condemn in any way. And I know that, that we do so much. You, you guys, I, I'm so thankful for you. But I also know as I look at this text and I consider what we're trying to do as a church, that there's always going to be this temptation to think, I just don't think I have time for X, Y, or Z, or, or I don't think I'm made for X, Y, or Z, or, or I don't know if this is really all that important. I mean, VBS, I know it's fun, but I don't really know if that's for me. We need you at VBS. We need you on the work days. We need you at a prayer meeting. We need you at all these things because ministry is happening and because the times where we, and it's not every time because we don't want to be legalistic about any ministry at all, but the times where we know that we're choosing ourselves over Christ are not going to satisfy us. I will tell you, there have been, just to use prayer meeting as an example, not that I'm particularly plugging that, although it is Wednesdays at 7 and 7, The times where I have stopped and said, man, I wonder if I could just cancel prayer meeting tonight and just not go. Because I really think I could just use some time to catch up on the dishes. Or or maybe just some time to, to just sit and stop for a second. Those can be good things. They're not wrong. And we should never pile on so much ministry that we have no time to take a break. We, we've talked about this before. But in those times where we're tempted to say, I fear I'm going to lose something by giving something to Christ, 
That's what I'm talking about. Giving of your time, your talent, your treasure. You're never going to lose anything that you give to Christ. That's why Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. The ultimate place where we look at and we say, this is loss. It is loss of life. It is the end of all things. Paul says, that is gain. Like John the Baptist saying, my stepping aside from this ministry focus is gain for me. It is not loss. So what we need to do, we had no, we had be, now do. We need to weigh the balances. We need to consider when my actions are empowered by the exaltation of Christ, that humility has to come with that. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a decrease in me in order for there to be an increase in Christ as I participate in it. John says in 31, he must increase, but I must decrease. He's talking about a necessity in the Christian life. He's not talking about, hey, if you want to subscribe to the gold plan or the platinum plan, then all you need to do is give a little bit more, and then then you'll have the real Christian life. This is the only Christian life. The life that increases Christ and decreases self is the only way to live in Christ. It's not an option for super spiritual. It's not an option for people who have the time. If our number one reason that we can't engage in ministry with Christ is because we don't have time, we're never going to find a time where we have time. Does that make any sense? We're never going to come to a place where we're like, now I can do it, right? Today is the day of salvation. And that doesn't just mean that it's a day where people can respond to Christ, but it's a day where we're meant to proclaim him as well, to testify to who he is. So I have to let the work that he has prepared for me, as Ephesians 1 says, be swallowed up in the work of Christ. I need to embrace the truth that my surrendering to Christ is only going to result in his glory and the completion of my joy. You have nothing to lose. There is nothing that God has withheld from you. There's nothing that he has asked of you that he hasn't already provided for you to give back to him. Everything that we have is from him. Rachel and Leah thought that more children would bring them satisfaction, but they couldn't have enough. James and John thought securing the right and left hand of Jesus would really set them up for life. And Jesus' response is, are you able to drink the cup that I drink from? Are you able to endure persecution and opposition from this world? Accumulation and prestige or places of honor can't bring the complete joy that John the Baptist has. That's why he was so freely willing to just give it up. Our call to repent of our own increase and turn to the increase of Christ does not come without great promise. Complete joy. Let those words settle in. That's what's on the table for you to gain. Something the world can promise but cannot offer. It's an eternal longing and it can only be satisfied by the eternal Christ. Because this is a calling to all, to give all. There is no sub-level Christianity. We can't say, I'm not going to quite go as far as John the Baptist. This has to be our motto in many ways as well. So know where all good things come from. Be joyful and satisfied in pointing to Christ. And do the work of decreasing yourself and increasing Christ. 
Last week I asked you to take five minutes to reread this passage from last week and then tell somebody about the love of Christ. This week I want to ask you again to take five minutes, reread this passage that takes like a minute and a half to read, and then ask yourself how you might, if you're thinking of scales, take one of those things that you know, this thing represents my increase in my life and not Christ's. Would you take five minutes, read this passage, find that thing, and ask the Lord to help you switch it over to the other side of the scale, to put that as an increase to Christ and not to yourself? It's going to cost you because you know how scales work, right? It goes up when something is taken off, and it goes down when something is taken off, is put on. And that's an increase, and this is the decrease. It's going to cost us if we want to live for Christ. We're not going to find the comfortable route. And I'm telling you because I know I'm looking for it all the time. John the Baptist teaches us there is no comfortable route. He must increase and I must decrease. Consider how you can take something from the category of your time, of your talent, of your treasure, and decrease yourself in it and increase, increase Christ in it. Pick one of those things, and then let me know how that's going for you. I want to know. I want to know how I can pray for you. I don't have a secret key that I'm going to give you after you finally decide what that is and say, well, all you need to do is read this Bible verse, and then magically everything will be easy. But I want to know how I can pray for you. I want to know how I can come alongside you. I might even want to share with you the thing I want to see less of in my own self and more of in Christ. Maybe you don't want to tell me. Maybe you want to tell somebody else. That's fine too. Make it a testimony to what Christ is doing in your life. That his word is speaking powerfully in your life. And that you're submitting to it by following him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that indeed there is nothing that you ask of us that you have not in the first place given to us. We thank you, Lord, that as we consider our needs, our trials, our conflicts, our problems, our challenges, you are not a God who holds back good from your people. You are a God who is greater than that. You are able in our wilderness in our supposed decrease, to actually create an increase, to complete our joy as we lift up Christ. Lord, we put no faith in ourselves. We want to put no faith in ourselves. We want our faith, our trust, our hope, our joy, our purpose, our plans, and our dreams to be in Christ alone. We know that you can grant that to us, Lord, because that is your design for us. This is what you've made us to be, image bearers, to reflect your glory, to testify to the world of your goodness. Lord, would you change our hearts? Would you establish us in Christ for his glory and our joy? In Jesus' name, amen.